Hello and welcome to this week's Talking Pharmacy podcast. My name is Richard Thomas, editor of Pharmacy Magazine, and join me on the pod this week are Rob Darricott, editor of P3 Pharmacy, Arthur Walsh, editor of Pharmacy Network News, and Neil Trainis, editor of Independent Community Pharmacist. Myself, Neil and Arthur are in our London office. The windows are open. You might be able to hear the Soho buzz of people enjoying themselves outside. We'll be joining them later. Rob is dialing in from the Cherwell service station on the M40. Now, we're recording this in the run-up to the busy Easter holiday weekend. So we have something different for you this week to take your mind off all those EPS nominations and grumpy patients queuing round the block. In a blatant rip-off of the Match of the Day Top 10 podcast, we're going to choose our top five pharmacy stories of the year so far. So, Neil, that's from January 2022. The criteria, well, they're fairly loose. We've each just gone for the stories that we felt were the most significant, important or newsworthy, or ones that have just grabbed our attention for whatever reason. We're going to do this in two parts, with the second podcast released after Easter. So, What have we chosen? Are we all going to agree? Or is this going to descend into 30 minutes of bickering like the real Match of the Day podcast with Lineker, Shearer, Richards et al? Let's find out. Sam, play the royalty-free sting. Right then, to start off, let's each of us list our top five news stories from number five to number two. Uh, We'll keep our our number one stories, the top stories for part two of the podcast. So, Rob, starting at number five, what are your top stories of the year so far? Uh, Thanks, Richard. So my top five, reading from five to two, is uh, number five. I've picked the story from earlier this month uh, with Lloyd's posting losses of 100 million after uh, axing 76 stores. Uh, and number four, I've gone for a February story, Wales moving to longer standard prescription cycles. And number three, right at the start of the year, um, it, uh, Neil's story, actually, uh, of Richard Vautry talking about CPCS being a complex mess. Uh, and at number two, I've gone for the NHS spending up to £3.8 million on community pharmacy integration leads at integrated care systems. Brilliant stuff. Thanks, Rob. Some good stories in there. Um, Arthur, then, let's have your top five from number five to number two. Okie doke. Number five is pharmacists are to play an essential role in NHS pharmacogenomic testing. Bit of a tongue twister there to kick us off. Uh, Then staffing issues, not a reason to close pharmacy, says NHS policy. This was a PSNC update on the ongoing controversial issue of temporary pharmacy closures then a couple of months ago we had the HEE survey which paints a complex picture of pharmacist vacancies in England and then my number two is uh, government launches a new consultation on hub and spoke proposals that was just a few weeks back and that's uh, quite important I think very important indeed thanks Arthur so uh, Neil let's have your number five to number two yeah I'm just going through my copious notes i've gone for number five uh hub and spoke um the cca uh, recently maybe controversially claiming that there's not enough service level income in the uh, contractual national framework to uh, even justify uh, hub and spoke across the uk 
Uh, number four, just through, yep, COVID jabs, the boosters. Pharmacy struggled to get involved in the boosters uh, phase three as a result of our freedom of information request, which, as we know, uh, you know generated some quite conflicting results from NHS England. Uh, number three, I've gone for a story that Arthur did, uh, a good story actually, um, Broad Yorkshire Law, which is a, I think described itself as a, a virtual law firm, allegedly writing to pharmacies falsely claiming that they faced investigation if they didn't stop prov- uh, providing COVID vaccines. Uh, um, sort of tapped into the whole anti-vaxxer movement and, um, and all that stuff. Uh, and number two, I've gone for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society um, uh, leaving or failing to de- actually declare that they'd left uh, the uh, uh, Federation of International Pharmaceutical, the International Global uh, Body, FIP. Um, and of course, Claire Anderson, the president's comments after that, when she said, what a great organisation it is, kind of contradicting the whole reason of the RPS leaving. Because, of course, as we know, they said it wasn't good value for membership. So um, those are my five to twos. Thanks, Neil. Uh, yeah, some, some great stories there. We, we're kind of agreeing on some and, and, you know, we've got some quite different choices for others, haven't we? My five to two, um, I've got number five, uh, a report this week, actually, from the task force for lung health, which called for pharmacies to be given additional funding for inhaler technique checks. I thought was an interesting story. Number four, I've gone for the return of uh, revalidation. Caught my attention, obviously, on Pharmacy Magazine. We do a lot of learning um, content, and unfortunately, revalidation in all its glory is back. Um, number three, I went for the, the the RPS in Meltdown that, that Neil, you've mentioned. I, I I kind of was wondering where to put that one, but I, I'm figuring that most of our listeners probably don't care that much, so that's why I put it number three. And number two, yes, the working conditions, um, pharmacist shortage crisis and the, the fierce debate around that. So there's my five to two. So, I mean, let's just pick out a few of those those stories. Um, Rob, you went for the Lloyds losses, didn't you? I thought more of us might have plumped for the Lloyds financial results. Um, so, Rob, it was what, 100 million loss, which is pretty eye-watering, but... Um, but an improvement on last year's results. Well, <clears throat> well, it's an improvement. I think small comfort. I mean, I picked it because I think it's indicative of uh, how challenging things are out in the in the world of community pharmacy right now. And of course, received wisdom has always been: you know, companies have grown and grown, and Lloyd's is what seventeen hundred pharmacies, I think, um, before uh, axing this seventy six that they have in the last twelve months. Um, but you know, times are really tough, and. Uh, you know, this is just a, a sign, I think, that, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we carry stories uh, month in, month out about the, the difficulties that independents are facing. And obviously, the work workforce issues are adding pressure to that. And and obviously, the, on the top of the cuts, which we're now into year four, effectively, of, of that is, is all adding to the pressure. But it, it's a sign of the times, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, the second largest chain in, in the country posting uh, significant losses again obviously they've recently been been sold as a business to uh, to to a new firm we'll be interested to see what happens with them um, but I think it's just a you know I picked it as a significant marker of the current state of the industry could, could I say something quite controversial at this point um controversial but well like I guess I'm speaking purely from from independence points of view, and, and I, I might be wrong. I've just throw it out there for, for debate. But I just think you know you, when we do we, we look at stories of Boots's returns and Lloyd's returns and these eye watering figures, and we know how tough it is out there. As you quite rightly say, Rob. Um, I just 
wonder how much independents care about these stories. What they care about, um, obviously, is their, their businesses and, and where they're going. I, I, if I was an independent, I probably wouldn't care about Lloyd's. I mean, I'm not saying the story is not valid, but uh, I just look uh, questioning the interest levels that independents would have in in these big eye-watering headline stories about the, these big the big boys. Well, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's specifically a matter about who's interested in it. I think that, that there's a as a kind of bellwether company that um, not just independents, but people across the industry might look at. And, and uh, you know, when you've got pharmacy consistently arguing that it needs, you know, more money into the contract to, to fulfill the basic service, let alone additional services that, um, that, you know, both sides seem to want to deliver. I think this is just a significant market. And obviously the numbers are quite eye-watering. And I think whether... You know, for the in the interest of community pharmacy as a whole, um, this kind of this kind of story is important because it's significant. And um, you know, you've often reported about the attitude or the apparent attitude of certain people um, inside the NHS to community pharmacy generally, and independence in particular. Um, well, if if this these kind of numbers from a uh, a significant operator, they do make people take net sit up and take notice. I think so. In the interest of painting a picture of the current state of the sector, I think it's I think it's important, and it's that, and that's why I picked it. Yeah, I would agree with Rob there. I think um, obviously these stories are perhaps most relevant to you if you're an employee pharmacist or in another employee within a multiple, and you think, oh gosh, you know what what's potentially coming down the line in terms of my job. Um, but I think um, it's sort of a the bellwether of you know what's perhaps coming down the line for the, for the whole sector as you say this sort of f- f- these funding issues cut across the entire sector whether you're sort of independent or multiple and um also i mean purely in terms of reader engagement um stories on the multiples finances we, when, we, when we look at the analytics on the website they do tend to um get get a lot of engagement and a lot of interest and obviously maybe that's predominantly people who work in the multiples but i would suspect that it's a little bit more spread across the sector okay yeah i i agree with 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 you guys on that um let's look at our number four uh, stories in fourth place some interesting ones here uh revalidation i chose arthur chose the story about staffing issues not being sufficient to close pharmacy um neil uh covid boosters i would come back to that neil actually because you've you've got um, two stories about COVID boosters in your your top five. Um, Rob, you, you, interesting one from you. The longer prescription cycles in Wales, uh, we um, we might return to Wales later on. But this, I thought, this was a really interesting development because you know, am I right now in saying that they think the twenty eight day prescribing doesn't actually reduce waste as they perhaps initially thought, and in fact, moving to fifty six day prescribing will free up time for pharmacists but then some pharmacists are getting concerned about that might mean less fee income but it's not it's not true Rob it's not your understanding well I think in a global sum in a global sum situation um the the less fee income is 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 a moot point I think one of the challenges with all of these kind of changes is that that everybody has to move at the same time and if there's a kind of piecemeal approach to this then um you know there are going to be winners and losers in the in the short term I thought it was interesting because um, this whole prescription 
cycle, repeat prescription, uh, prescription duration issue has been floating around the sector for decades, really. And, um, you know, at times it's it's been of concern where doctors, GPs, arbitral practices indeed have arbitrarily suddenly decided, right, we're going to write three month scripts for everybody. I don't, I think the jury's still out about what's the optimum number for for um, minimising the amount of waste there is. Um, I know when I was looking at this, you know, in the 90s, I think what we did know was that very, very long prescriptions definitely did add to the waste burden. And um, that was certainly, uh, that was certainly something that interested the Minister of Health, one of the Ministers of Health, when I was in the Department of Health in the in the early 90s. Uh, Michael Mawinney got very excited about, about uh, waste medicines and instituted this thing which we all jokingly called the bathroom cabinet survey which the um, office of health household whatever did a added load of questions to one of their surveys and was trying to measure how many medicines were in bathroom cabinets so i thought it was an interesting move from the um from the welsh government to actually uh, pick on a pick on a number and go for it and um i think it's going to be interesting across uh, Britain to see what the results of that is, uh, a how the implementation goes, but also whether it results in the sort of things that they hope it might result in. And one of the reasons why they are doing it is because they do think it will um, save a bit of time for community pharmacists to invest in more clinical services. Okay, now um, Neil, you've gone for a COVID booster story in uh, fourth place and in third place, so. Why have these two stories stood out for you? Well, certainly the um, the one I put in f- uh, fourth, the COVID jabs, the boosters. I mean, I know it's some people might argue it's it's history. It's gone. That period's gone. We've moved. We've we've come quite a long way since then. But I, you know, I, I, it just struck me with the the phase three booster rollout, just how little. And I know you know government and people have been saying what a, and pharmacies have done a tr- tremendous job in 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 the, in the COVID vaccine rollout period. They've, they've done brilliantly. Um, but I, I you know I, I get quite infuriated listening to and still listening to ministers, um, uh, you know, saying you know the boost the booster rollout. Pharmacies played a great role. Well, they they could have done so much more had you had they given been given the chance. And and I, I thought that our freedom of information request really did um, you know reveal some stark. Stark figures, you know, basically laying bare how little pharmacies were were used during that uh, phase three. We still don't know. Uh, we still don't have an, a definitive answer as to why that actually was, and um, that really that that story in particular did did you know make my blood boil a little bit because I thought you know it, it, come on give, you know, you really value pharmacy pharmacies there let's make the maximum use of it. Um, the anti vaxxer story um, which we ran in February was was. Shocking, quite frankly, and not only for the the story itself. In other words, the this law firm allegedly writing to to pharmacies to sort of dissuade them, threaten them, intimidate them into into stopping rolling out the uh, COVID jabs. But you know, it just tapped into this this whole anti vaccination uh, movement, the sentiment which is still very much alive. I mean, at the time during the pandemic, it was it was it was it was horrible, and I I, I can't imagine for one minute what pharmacy teams. We're going through, you know, we heard stories about of anti-vaxxers outside the pharmacies getting very threatening. Some some of them going into pharmacies and getting very threatening. Um, 
these, you know, at the end of the day, as we as we know, to state the obvious, you know, pharmacists are just doing their jobs, they're improving people's health, and it, it just makes me sick. That, you know, that they were treated in this way by these, quite frankly, you know, well, quite frankly, and they and they're still they're still there, and they're still and they're still you know hammering away at their this this complete and utter um, fantasy land that they're living in. So. Both stories it just made my blood boil, really, for different reasons. And I and I and that's why I've got them in my in my top five. Okay. Neil's now gone to lie down in a darkened room with a cold flannel on his head. We might have to beep out some of that language. But yeah, spoken with uh, with real passion and yeah, we, we we totally agree with the sentiments he've expressed there, Neil. No, some some big stories in the number three slot. Um and Arthur, you've chosen um the story we did on this, 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 the survey looking at the very, uh, the NH, uh, NHS survey, looking at the very complex picture about pharmacy vacancies. And I, you know, I put this quite high on my list as well. R- remind us what, what that survey revealed. Yeah, well, it sort of backed up what a lot of uh, contractors, including the big multiples, have been warning about for, for months now, is that there's, a staffing crisis within community pharmacy um, driven by a number of factors um, over the past years and, and months. It, um, COVID-related isolations have been a factor in sort of temporary staff shortages, but also there's uh, been a migration to primary care of pharmacists and pharmacy technicians, and contractors have been very concerned about this. Um, the so This is Health Education England survey published in uh, January this year, um, sort of put some sort of hard data behind it and said so so it was revealed that the vacancy rate for pharmacists for both full-time equivalent positions and you know just, just headcount was eight percent which was uh, double the vacancy rate for pharmacists um the last time the survey was run in 2017 and 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 many many contractors who responded to the survey said it was fairly difficult or very difficult to fill pharmacist um, positions. Again, the the rate of people saying it was difficult um, more more than doubled since since the last survey was was, was done. Um, it was there were some interesting findings that um, although the the pharmacist um, vacancy rate has, has risen quite sharply, it, the picture was much worse if you look at support staff roles. Um, so it's sort of, uh, but, but but the reason that, that that we said it was a complex picture was that the actual number of full-time pharmacists reported as working in pharmacies had risen slightly since the last survey. So the vacancy rate and the perceived difficulty of filling posts had gone up, but the actual reported number of pharmacists working in pharmacy had had had, had also got had gone up. So. Um, so the, I mean the PDA who are sort of skeptical of the whole notion of of staff shortages in pharmacies it, it latched onto that and um, um, perhaps with reason who 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 knows it's it, it's a complex picture as we as we said yeah it is really really complex and you know as we discussed many times um, someone's workforce crisis or pharmacist shortage is is another person's working conditions issue so. Um, you know, this is again something where the sector needs to come together to try and work through some solutions. Unfortunately, we're not getting that at the moment. Before we move on, Lord, to the uh, our number, uh, our second choices, Rob. I did want to touch on your um, 
story in third place, which was um, about the CPCS and it being a a complex mess, which which it is. It's a clunky service, as we all know. But people are working on solutions, aren't they? So um, progress, perhaps, being made here? Yeah, I mean, I, I picked out the um, Neil story about uh, Dr. Richard Vautry, the ex, uh, the former chair of the General Practitioners Committee of the BMA, who uh, Neil did a, a very nice interview with him where he talked about the concerns about the CPCS from a GP perspective and the amount of additional pressure it puts on practice staff. But um, about a week later, though, we ran a story about the the approach to CPCS in Cornwall, where they'd taken, uh, they'd basically added a little bit on from a local perspective and probably come up with a with a better, better service as a result. And I think it just illustrates for me that there are people thinking about how you might, uh, you know, shade, shade the, shade the, the, uh, the service a little bit or or tweak it a bit and make it a little bit more patient and pharmacist and even uh, GP friendly uh, to get more traction and to get more people through it so I think I think there are people thinking about improvement and of course it's a new, it's still a relatively new thing and uh, you know implementation is always a bit of a challenge so I think um, it's definitely something that should be persisted with and it's nice to see that there are uh, there are concerns on 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 all all parts of the uh, all parts of the system. Yeah, uh, but uh, but an enthusiasm to try and get it right. Yes, I I think we're definitely picking up on on some some great local activity, as you say, Rob, to try and find solutions and to make it work. And I guess to be charitable, yeah, you know, it is it is still fairly early days, and the system is clunky, but there are ways of making it work. And yeah, again, some some real good innovative stuff happening locally. I think to make that happen. Do you guys not think? I'm sorry to interrupt that, but do you guys not think, in terms of the CPCS and and all the problems that you know that it's yeah that they had that's, that comes with it? Do you do you not think that we look at? We've said it before, you know, pharmacy first and, and and the Scottish model. Is it just not better? I mean, is it just not more efficient? Is it not more smooth? Is it just not more? Is it just not better? I, mean, I guess it's what NHS England is prepared to to offer. I would I would definitely agree that the direct sort of walk in patient led um, model is better for for pharmacies and for patients, and probably ultimately better for the health service. But it's it's who hold the purse strings, isn't it? And who's prepared to to pay for? You know, they they probably perhaps worried about an eye-watering rate of, of patients walking in off the street and that being recorded and then um, then billed for. I, I think you're right, Arthur. I think that's one of the big issues is, you know, it's, it's all very well um, in, in you know, the population of England is so many times greater than uh, Wales or Scotland and therefore gross the numbers up and you, you can come to some pretty eye-watering things. There is the other issue in England where... There are still people who um, who don't get free prescriptions, um, and so you know add that add that extra factor in. You know if there's a if there's a route to get free stuff, I'm sure there'll be ministers thinking this is all about getting free stuff, isn't it? I'm not too keen on that. Um, so I can I can see the reticence. However, I do think that the um, the the models in Scotland and Wales, and as we're going to see, I think shortly in. Northern Ireland too offer some opportunities to explore further how that might work, and I I wouldn't be surprised at all if we don't see a some kind of regional pilot at some stage in the near, not too distant future in England, just to start to test out some of those hypotheses because I'm sure that the the concern about the costs is going to be overblown, but then again it always is you know when it comes to thinking about that. I think there's another challenge as well, which is that. Um, 
I think we've still got a hangover. I suspect there's still a hangover from the the way that the medicines use review system was gamed a little bit by some, and therefore there's a scepticism about um, you know how how services are delivered in England. I think that the the GPC the 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 CPCS uh, the DMS uh, Discharge Medicine Service I think are both opportunities for pharmacy to to demonstrate that it can deliver clinical services in a community pharmacy context, and that should help to build confidence that uh, that we could go a little bit further with with the um, CPCS and turn that into a more patient led and patient driven service. Right. Number two stories in second place. Uh, let's just remind our listeners what we went for. I, I chose working conditions and or pharmacist shortages, which we've talked about. Um, Arthur uh, selected the hub and spoke consultation. Neil went for the society's controversial decision to leave FIP. And Rob chose the uh, appointment of community pharmacy integration leads at, at a local level. I'm just going to pick on one of these. I think Arthur the hub and spoke consultation now you've done quite a lot of work on this um it's again very divisive we've been here before what's the feeling on the ground that you're 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 picking up as you you kind of report on this issue i i would say the mood is one of puzzlement and suspicion which is probably <laughs> similar to what it was like in in was it 2016 2016 when the, when the last consultation ran um the government has revisited the initial proposals and amended um so for example it's now been confirmed that uh, dispensing hubs will need to be registered pharmacies um which um will go some way to assuaging concerns about patient safety and also um, dispensing doctors will be allowed to act as spokes um, is, is another change that's been made. Um, I, I haven't, I mean, the, the, the government's very keen um, on on the on hub and spoke as a way of driving efficiency um, and making dispensing run more efficiently, it says. And, and also it says that it, it may improve patient safety by driving down error rates, although error rates are already, you know, quite quite low in, in community pharmacy. But from independent contractors, certainly, and, and, and the MPA, as you as you would expect, um, people have have reservations still, and and they worry about. I mean, if you if you're an independent contractor, your buying margin is so important at at the moment. The way the, the way the funding. Uh, model and the contract works. Your buying margin is so important to, to to keeping your operations running, and people have concerns about what the outcome might be if if um, if you hand over uh, that, that some of that control to to a dispensing hub. Obviously, um, it has to be stressed that the the if the legislation is changed, um, then it'll be completely optional whether whether you want to enter in, in enter into a, a hub and. A hub and spoke arrangement or not, that option uh, would be available to you. But, uh, but I suppose people have co- concerns. There's, there's always a bit of suspicion when it comes to the government and pharmacy funding and, and incentives in the contract. People worry about sort of what what, what might what might be be coming down the line. Um, I was surprised to to see as well um, the, uh, the 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 CCA kind of whose who's members are are. Are the ones who've been been using hub, hub and spoke really? Even they say that um, the uh, the contract as it's configured now in England, um, just the, the, there isn't enough funding for services to to incentivize 
um, people to enter into hub and spokes arrangement. And there's still kind of just a lot of um, uncertainty there. That's what I've heard. Um, although I, there there are you know other views. Um, I, I'm sure. And, and, and Rob, I think you 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 take a take a different um, approach to hub, hub and spoke. But that's sort of. Um, what, I'm, what I've heard from the guy. I mean, I've spoken to one or two people who who, who say, well, th- this could create a, le- a more level, level playing field. Um, but even they sort of have concerns about um, uh, could 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 it sort of consolidate powers, uh, consolidate sort of power among among the wholesalers at the expense of independence, and um, and, and 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 what sort of plans the government might have for for funding down the line. I think that is interesting, Arthur. Uh, but one of the things, and it, it keeps cropping up this, I think there's a there's a job to be done somewhere in, in busting a few myths about this. So I was talking to one of our excellent freelancers just yesterday who told me that they'd recently been speaking to a independent community pharmacist who reckoned that hub and Sp- they were concerned about the hub-and-spoke proposals because they couldn't afford to lose um, you know, prescription volume. And there's a simple answer to that. This, this, you know, this isn't mandatory. Seems to still be a lot of people out there who think if you change the law, then automatically everybody has to follow the change. If you are concerned about uh, prescription share, if you're concerned about giving power to the wholesalers, if you're concerned about any of those things, well, don't do it. Don't do it. And arguably, if you're if you're in the fortunate position of having sufficient volume in store anyway, then if you're not looking at in-store automation um, to drive efficiency in, in, in the assembly process of repeat prescriptions, then I'd be surprised. So there's, there are other options, but I think there still seems to be a feeling out there that if the laws change, then automatically everybody wants, everybody is required to find a hub and, and just crack on. And that, that, Unless I'm completely misreading the way English law is set up, that's not what happens. Well, that's not what has to happen. No, you're right, Rob. I think in the the government's own um, impact assessment, I think it says that by the 10-year point after any legislation uh, changes, it only expects a tenth of eligible pharmacies to have signed up. So, yes, maybe we're forgetting that aspect. But people still struggling to see, see the business case. So that's the end of part one of this special edition of the Talking Pharmacy podcast. We'll be back with part two after the Easter break when we'll reveal our number one news stories of the year so far. Have a great and restful Easter if you can. Thanks very much for listening.